We read God's word this morning in two different passages in the gospel according to Matthew. We will start in Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus explains the law of God as being relevant yet for the people of his day. We'll read Matthew 5 verses 33 through 37. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And then we'll turn to Matthew 23 and read verses 13 through 22. If in Matthew 5 Jesus was giving positive instruction, in Matthew 23, He is giving rebuke of those who do not keep the law of God. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. We'll read the word of God this far. We take as our instruction this morning, Lord's Day 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism, as it continues to explain the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Because we use the name of God in swearing an oath, question 101 asks, may we then swear religiously by the name of God? Yes, either when the magistrates demanded of the subjects or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. 
For such an oath is founded on God's word and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely, which honor is due to no creature. Beloved saints in Christ, last week you were taught and reminded that the name of God is holy. And because his name is holy, how we use his name must always be holy. That is, we must always use it with fear and reverence. That was the great principle that was set forth in Lord's Day 36. Now most of the situations in which we would use the name of God are those in which we voluntarily pray. We voluntarily open up the word of God. We consciously in worship sing. In other words, we use the name of God often, and in fact daily, and Lord's Day 36 reminded us how to use it rightly in all of our life, what the proper use of the name of God requires then of us, is that we wake up in the morning and one of the first thoughts that goes through our minds is, I am again today still a servant of Jesus Christ who bought me with his blood, who renews me by his spirit. I will live yet again today in thankfulness for all that he's done for me and to the praise of his glory. And when we start off our day that way, we are of a mind, we are eager and ready to begin to use the name of God aright. Now in Lord's Day 37, the situation is not that in all of our life as we go throughout the day, we're using the name of God again and again, but the situation is that somebody, usually somebody in authority, says to us, Will you take the name of God on your lips and call God as your witness that you are speaking truth? This admittedly is not something that happens every day. In fact, it happens perhaps in our life rather seldom. Not never. The instruction remains relevant for two reasons. It regards our use of the name of God and there are times we are put under oath, so seldom maybe, but not never. And the question now, that, when that question is put to you, will you take the name of God on your lips? What do you say? There are Christians who say, no, we won't. And if you ask them why they won't, they say because Jesus said in Matthew 5, swear not at all. Do not take an oath. And James repeats that instruction in James 5 verse 12. And therefore, we are not going to because the Lord our God told us not to. While we can appreciate the use of a scriptural warrant on the part of these Christians, one has to acknowledge that as we come to 
the Word of God in Matthew 5 especially, you have two biblical principles of interpretation that are coming together. The one is to take the bare words of God in the Scriptures and to say, well, they mean what they say. It can't be that Jesus says, swear not at all, but we may. That, that first. But secondly... The principle that Scripture interprets Scripture and throughout Scripture you find many instances not only of God taking an oath and of Jesus Christ taking an oath, but of the saints of God taking an oath so that you can't say, well, God did, but that doesn't mean we made. The saints of God also took an oath. And when these two principles come together, we instead of taking the position of the Anabaptists, Quakers, and such, that we may not swear oaths at all, will come to understand that oaths are permitted. But that when Jesus says to us, don't swear, let your yea be yea and your nay nay, is addressing how it ought to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Oaths are permitted by the child of God as we live in society. But as we function one with another, in the body and communion of saints, let it be that our word is never suspected, that we're never suspected of lying, that no oath, therefore, would ever be required of us. That will be our approach, and that's the approach of the Heidelberg Catechism as well, in Lord's Day 37. What we have set forth in Lord's Day 37, a defense of the proper use of an oath, is not exclusively a Reformed teaching. It is, by and large, the understanding of Christianity throughout the ages. We take as our starting point, then, this morning, the instruction of Jesus Christ himself. And I call your attention to this under the theme, Christ's instruction regarding swearing oaths. Notice, first, oaths that God permits. Second, Oath that God hates. And third, speech that God loves. So what is an oath? An oath is a calling on God to witness that what I have just said to you is indeed true. That I have not lied. And in calling God to witness of this, what I'm really saying when I take an oath is, Lord, if in fact I lie, Thou dost know that I ask thee to punish me. If I must then go to hell because I used thy name as a witness to my speaking truth when in fact I lied, then punish me, send me to hell, but may thy name be glorified. This is an oath. It is not merely a promise nor is an oath merely a vow. A vow is a very special kind of promise. A vow is a promise made to God. It might be made in the hearing of others, but it's made especially to God. We're going to hear a sister, a daughter of the congregation make a vow tonight. And she's going to, in our presence, say to God that she confesses him and confesses that which he sets forth in his word to be truth. 
and rejects all that opposes the word, and she resolves to live a new and godly life. That's not, first of all, a promise to you, or to me, or to the consistory, but to God. That's a vow. We often make other promises where we're making promises to each other, not vows, but promises to each other. Now, an oath assumes that when I make a promise to you, I might not keep it. That is, my nature is not such that I would keep it. I am, you are, by nature, those who would swear an oath to our own hurt and change. Psalter number 15, uh, based on, uh, rather, Psalm 15, refers to those who will come into the house of God. They have sworn an oath to their own hurt. It's to their disadvantage and they will not change their oath. They will abide by it. But the very fact that humans are liars, the very fact that I and you by nature seek our own best earthly interests sometimes means that the promise we make one to another is not believed. And not in any circumstance now when that's true, but in certain circumstances when that is true, God permits us to take an oath that is an addition to the promise to say, I will call down God as my witness. If I am lying, I ask him to punish me. Now let's defend that these oaths are permissible, not that they should be used widely. There are certain circumstances when to use them and others when not to. But let's defend that they are permissible. And we need to do that, number one, because we do live in and among the world. There will be times then when in our service to our country, an oath will be required. In the second place, we do well to be reminded that they are permissible, because in addition to the Anabaptist approach, we will not swear oaths because of what Jesus said. There's another kind of person who might say, no, I'm not going to take an oath. One who's founded the church, one who claims to be a child of God, and I'm not suggesting he or she necessarily isn't, but one who says, I am my own individual. If you're not going to believe me just because I said it, I am not going to take an oath. What this approach or refusal to take an oath does is really say in the long run, it's going to be my way or it won't be. And I'm not going to do what you ask me to do. Now, in fact, when there is such a person like that in the church of Jesus Christ and when the situation appropriately calls for an oath, then in fact, bear in mind, brothers and sisters, that the one who refuses only opens up the door for more suspicion. The right use of an oath includes, according to Hebrews 6, the swearing of an oath for the end of all strife, so that the matter is put to rest. Well, what we need to do then is defend that oaths are permissible. And our Heidelberg Catechism does that when it says that such an oath is founded on God's word and was justly used by the saints, both in the Old 
and New Testament. Before I come to the saints who used it, let's see that God, when he made his covenant promise to Abraham to make of him a great and mighty nation, Genesis 22, verse 16, swore an oath by himself. When he promised Jesus Christ to be the mediator, the great priest king after the order of Melchizedek, we read in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. He won't change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. When Jesus stood before the high priest, as we read of it in Matthew 26, and the high priest said, I adjure thee by the living God. And Jesus said, having put under that oath, thou hast said, yes, I do, high priest. I am the living God. I am the Christ. Jesus took an oath. So it isn't just that people have done it. If the argument merely is that Christians have done it, then we're merely making an argument based on tradition. That's not the argument that the Heidelberg Catechism makes. God and Christ have done it. But then the law and the prophets permitted it in the Old Testament among the Israelites themselves. Exodus 22, 11, Numbers 30, verse 2, refer to a man, they both say if, conditionally, if a man swear an oath to bind his soul. If he swears an oath, and in swearing that oath, he commits himself to something. Now, although they're both set forth conditionally, they go on to say that he must keep his oath. If God were to say to Israel, I don't want you swearing oaths at all, he would not have said, if a man swear an oath, he must keep it, but he would have said, thou shalt not take an oath. And therefore, we have the example of saints in the Old Testament. Abraham, to his servant, was going to go off to the land from which Abraham came and Ur of the Chaldees and look for a wife for Isaac. And the servant was to swear that he would not, under any circumstances, bring a wife of the Canaanites. Jacob made his son swear an oath before he died that when they left the land of Egypt, they would take his bones with them. Paul in Romans 1 verse 9 calls God as his witness to the Romans that what he's saying is true. And God says in Isaiah 65 verse 16, Isaiah 65 is speaking of the new heavens and new earth, the perfection of the kingdom of God, that there will be those that swear in the earth and they will swear will we in heaven in the kingdom of God by the God of truth. Apparently, Scripture permits the taking of an oath. Why then, again, the absolute prohibition, it seems, in Matthew 5? And the answer is that in Matthew 5, Jesus is not speaking of the Christian in relationship to the world, but is speaking of the members of the kingdom in our relationship to each other. In the kingdom of God, when our yea is yea and our nay is nay, there will need be no oaths. Matthew 23 addresses a different matter. There it's the hypocrites. 
That is, the scribes and the Pharisees, whom Jesus himself calls hypocrites. And they're hypocrites because they set themselves forward as obeying the law of God in all its details. But Jesus says again and again, in this way, in this way, in that way, and in that way, you show you're not consistent, and here's one way. Your view of oaths is wrong. Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. You can swear an oath by the temple and say, but I'm not going to do it. I swore by the temple. I, I don't need to keep that oath. But if I swear by the gold of the temple, then I've got to keep the oath. Or I'll swear by the gift on the altar, and then I've got to keep the oath. But if I swear by the altar itself, I don't have to keep the oath. And Jesus says, number one, you're making up rules as you go along. Number two, you're forgetting a fundamental principle of oath-keeping. We swear by the greater. And what's greater? The gold of the temple or the temple? The gift that's on the altar or the altar? There's a violation of a principle of oath-taking by the Pharisees here. The issue then is not whether we may, but in what circumstances may we and how. And our Heidelberg Catechism also explains for us the answer to those questions. In the first place, it sets forth the situations when the magistrates demanded of the subjects. That's number one. So now we're in a courtroom. It doesn't even have to be a courtroom necessarily with a judge. It's any other official carrying out of state business. It might be that you're in the uh, Secretary of State's office. Don't know what you would call that in Colorado. But uh, you're registering your car. You're getting a new license. Something like that. And you are told to put up your hand and say, after the one who represents the state, something and so help be God. So these things happen as we carry out our life in the midst of society. When the magistrate requires us then to do it, we may. And we may because the magistrate functions in the authority God has given him, Romans 13. Whether this person is a believer or an unbeliever requiring us to do it, they function in behalf of the state, which is a civil government God has instituted. It's a matter then of keeping the fifth commandment. By implication, though not magistrates, there are times when even in the kingdom of God, the yeas are not yea and the nays are not nay. In other words, the parent says to the child, you've been lying. The consistory says to the member of the congregation, we know you've been lying and we're going to put you under an oath. Then too, although the catechism doesn't explicitly address that issue, here's the same principle. Somebody in God-given authority over me is requiring this of me in order to carry out their authority and calling in the sight of God. An oath then is permissible. There's a second circumstance which the catechism indicates, and that is, when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. 
It references to the Old Testament law again in Exodus 22. And in that passage, the law regards a situation in which you had to go away for some extended time. Maybe you had to make your own journey to the temple in Jerusalem. And I, your neighbor, was entrusted with caring for your livestock while you were gone. And one of your livestock was a very expensive bull. And while you were gone, that bull, I said to you, got sick and died, or in some accidental way was brought to his demise, but you say, I am not so sure that's how it happened. You, Kuiper, you were entrusted with the safety of that bull. That bull was worth a lot of money, and I'm holding it against you. And so there's a disagreement. There's disunity in the church of Jesus Christ. It is, and the law recognize that, the law recognize that, it is a disagreement over a piece of property, but the value of which was not insignificant. And at that point, to the glory of God and the safety of the neighbor, that would in this case be me, the neighbor whose reputation is at stake, and, and if indeed I did kill your bull, who is to be judged by the law as guilty, I may take an oath, and when I do it, if all along I've been trying to get you to ignore the fact that in fact I did kill your bull, and I simply want the dispute to be put to rest, my taking of an oath will lead you. That's the law in Israel too. Will lead you to say I leave the matter. It's done. But my soul. My soul is in jeopardy. Because even if the rest of my earthly life goes fine. I will stand one day before my maker. And he'll say to me. The holy Jehovah God whose name you used to swear an oath, and you did it for your own personal interests, and you lied, and the God of truth is made to be a liar with you, it won't happen. I bring on me the curse of God. It is a weighty thing, the swearing of an oath. Those are the situations, nevertheless, not only to which our catechism refers, but which have scriptural warrant in which an oath may be sworn. Now, there's more to say yet about the right use of an oath, the oath that God loves. We've covered the circumstances, but there's also a form, and that is a form of an oath that's right, and there's a, a, a matter of the heart. So the form of the oath regards swearing in the name of of Jehovah. Therefore, when Jesus called the Pharisees to account for saying, you may swear by the gold of the temple, but you don't have to buy the temple, you don't have to keep your oath then, by the gift on the altar, but not if you swear by the altar, Jesus Christ is saying, never did God permit oaths of that form anyway. We swear by the great test, and the greatest is Jehovah God. 
The gold of the temple can't punish me if I swear falsely. The temple can't punish me if I swear falsely. And now you and I are brought face to face with this fact. That if as we go about our life we say by George and by Cracky and by gum. If that's part of our language, then we also are using an oath that's not permissible. It might be flippant. It might be something we don't give a second thought to. But we are using the form of an oath in a way that does not please Jehovah God. Furthermore, as to the proper oath, the catechism asked this question in 101 and used one word that I want to expand on a moment. May we then swear religiously. Now what is it to swear religiously? Swear religiously for some people just seems to be that they can do it about every other sentence. That's not the point of the catechism. To swear religiously is to make an oath in the service of and understanding that I live to the face of Jehovah God. It is part of my life as a redeemed covenant child of God before his face. That is swearing religiously. And therefore, as we swear oaths, we must do so in regard to the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. Every time I take an oath on my lips, or you, though it be for a magistrate in some courtroom, I have to remember, I by nature would lie. I by nature would make an oath to my own advantage. But that's not what I'm here for. And that's not what oaths are for. And that's not what Christ redeemed me and indwells me to do. I will swear an oath in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of the triune God, before whom I one day will stand in the, way, in, in the day of judgment. My oath says, I love truth. I love God, who is truth. I love my Savior, who is truth. Those are oaths that God permits. Now in the second place, notice that by implication, there are oaths that God hates. The catechism doesn't spell out such oaths that God hates, but everything that it says positively in the right form of taking an oath and the right occasion for taking an oath means that if we don't do it that way, God hates it. Besides... The Heidelberg Catechism here is continuing its explanation of the third commandment. And those who take the name of God in vain, the Lord, we were taught, will not hold guiltless. You and I must come to see then oaths which God hates. Some of them you may have examined last week in noting Lord's Day 36. To curse somebody is to call down God, God's power and God's authority and God's judgment on somebody else. And if you do that in the name of God, but God does not in fact intend to curse that person, but has blessed them, then 
We have used the name of God in vain in the form of rash swearing. That secondly too, for rash swearing means the quick, the frivolent use of an oath. It's common in our society. I've already referred to the by gums and by crackies and by Georges. This is the way people speak. And members of the covenant kingdom and church of Jesus Christ desiring to live an antithetical godly life must say, I will eliminate that kind of language from my vocabulary. I will not use it. In the third place, what's forbidden, according to Lord's Day 36, you learned was perjury, that is false swearing. I have absolutely no intention of keeping this promise, but you want me to take an oath I'll do it. Well, you've noticed those last week. Today, let's see. And this would be another reason why it's good and appropriate that the Heidelberg Catechism have a second Lord's Day devoted to the topic. Let's see. That the name of God must so live in our heart. His revelation, our Standing in awe of him must so fill us heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we're reminded that not just when we use his name in an oath, but at every moment we even so much as use his name. We mean to be expressing love for him. There are frivolous souls to guard against. Perhaps this happens more among the youth of the congregation. Let me just picture a scenario. A girl at school is telling some dramatic event that happened in her life over the weekend, almost too fanciful to be true. And her friends are raising some eyebrows at her. And she said, no, I swear. And then, not that that's just a matter of females, but the same on the part of a young boy who wants to convince those who are listening to him that he's actually speaking truth. This was not the magistrate requiring. This was not safety or the glory of God requiring. This was nobody else requiring. This was me quickly saying. I'll do anything so you'll believe me. And we must remember. Not to take such oaths on our lips. Jesus Christ in his words in Matthew 23. To the Pharisees are underscoring. The spiritual danger in which the frivolent and wrong use of an oath. Puts one into. For he's addressing these scribes and Pharisees and calling them hypocrites not only, but says, first of all, woe. Woe doesn't just mean something bad could happen. You'd better watch out. This could end up not well, but woe here coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ. 
the representative of Jehovah God with a view to the salvation of the world, but also the judgment of the world. Woe means curses and sorrows and griefs will come on you. Such oaths God hates. Do you understand why he hates them? You don't have one pastor leading you through the law continuously and so that there's consistency this time through. Have you heard though recently in your going through the law of God or some previous time going through the law of God in the catechism? Have you heard that every commandment has as its basis a truth about Jehovah God? It's not stated in the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? Because Jehovah is an only divine being. Thou shalt not worship any graven image. Why? Because Jehovah is spirit and his glory is a spiritual glory and he reveals himself in a spiritual way. And our worship of him must reflect that. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why? Because Jehovah is a holy God. A holy God and the holiness of God means this. He seeks his glory. That's the number one thing he does. Chose some from eternity in Christ and reprobated others. It was with a view to his glory. We sent Jesus Christ into our flesh and to the death of the cross, bearing the burden of our sin, bearing the wrath of God. It was to God's glory. He raised Christ from the dead. When he formed you in the womb, when he renewed us in Christ, so that we are no longer children of the devil, but God's. It was for his glory. And he hates all that does not recognize him and his glory and does not seek his glory. That is Jehovah's holiness. And that's why God hates oaths that are not sworn according to the right biblical form or for the right reason or with the right attitude. In the second place, God hates such oaths because the judgment of Jehovah God is a certain reality. Already referred to the day of judgment. We're calling God to punish me if I swear falsely. But there are many today who say, but that day isn't really coming anyway. Maybe if, maybe if God isn't happy with me, there'll, something will happen in my life that just isn't pleasant. And, and that will be God's judgment. So some temporal disadvantage. But what happens even among professing Christians is a denial that Jesus Christ will one day come again. That we will stand before him in judgment. That he will separate those whom he loves on his right hand from those whom he does not on his left. 
And so many say, no big deal. In the end, we'll all get to heaven anyway with that approach. We have no reason to take an oath seriously. But when we remember that the justice of Jehovah God is certain, is sure, because it manifests that he seeks the glory of his own name. Then we remember God hates sinful oaths. As you and I reflect on this, as we examine our own life, we see that we failed. There has been in us, and there is. On the one hand, because of our sinful nature, whereby we begin to serve Jehovah rightly, but never do it perfectly. But on the other hand, because of that old man of sin, who doesn't even try to serve him, there is in you and me a judgment that we deserve. And the judgment is death. The judgment is hell. Therefore, we look to Jesus Christ, who not only is giving in Matthew 5 and 23 New Testament instruction regarding the keeping of the law of God, but we look to Jesus Christ, who's going to lay down his life on the cross for sinners. And we look to that death as being that which has delivered us from the very woe that God pronounces, Christ pronounces, on the scribes. Pharisees. And then being delivered, we don't say, well, I get a second chance, I can do what I want now. But we say, I will devote my life to doing that which pleases God. And the third point, as we devote our life to that which pleases God, we need to broaden our scope. There is, of course, a uh, uh, words that please God with regard to the oaths, but we've examined them, the occasion, the manner, the goal and purpose. But now let's do justice to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 especially. I say unto you, swear not at all. Let your yea be yea. You know that yea means yes, right? When you say yes, mean yes. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 20, uh, 37. When you say no, mean no. Whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. If that's our approach, if that's our starting point in all of our speech one to another, when I tell you yes, I understood that I represent Jehovah and stand before his faith, face. And my yes is an intentional yes. What I say to you, no. I understand that Jehovah knows whether I take an oath or not, Jehovah still knows the truth of the matter. And I, even if I don't take God's name on my lips, will speak the way Christ will speak in the day of judgment. So I will tell you, no. Children and young people, what Jesus is saying is that if you get home well past your curfew on a Friday night, 
your parents have reason to suspect that your activities that evening were less than godly, in fact, were not godly, and they ask you, acknowledge it. Congregation, it means that if some elders come to visit you and they have some questions for you, and you understand that if you just convince them to get off your case, then you will have smooth sailing on earth for a while. But you know in your heart why they're there. And you know in your heart that you've sinned. Then when they ask you questions, be forthright. And I could make more applications, but we've got the point. It isn't just somebody who swears oaths flippantly who stands in danger of the judgment of Jehovah, but it's one who says yes when the answer is no, and no when the answer is yes, who stands exposed to the wrath of God. Jesus Christ never said yes when the answer was no. Or no, when the answer was yes. Are you, am I, like our Savior? We have the power. And there too is the gospel. Not only that our Lord and Savior died on the cross to bear the wrath of God, which all who sit against the third and all commandments of God's law deserve, but that that Jesus Christ is not still dead. He's still dead. If he was just a great teacher, he died a very unjust death. But he's still dead. Still, I don't have the power to keep the law or the incentive. But if he lives, and if he lives in my heart, I have both the power and the incentive. For what he did when he regenerated us what he does as he sanctifies us is plant truth in the heart of one who's prone to lie. Put light where there was darkness. Put the desire to obey God where there had been the desire only to seek self. We have the power the incentive is this. On the one hand, to live in gratitude for all that he's done for us. And the second place to show the world and all around that while they can't expect people's yeses to be yes and no's to be no, as they get to know us better, they'll say, but there's something about that one and that one and that one. They go to the same church. That's amazing. There's something about those people we don't have to be Anabaptists, dressing only in black, driving horse-drawn buggies, that our speech is truth, will set us apart from the world around. And in the third place, the incentive is, when I do finally stand before Jesus Christ, my Savior, on the day of judgment, he will say, not just to me, I knew it already. But he'll say to the world, he'll say to any 
who had an issue against me. He'll say to any who still think I'm lying. He'll say, my son and my daughter, my brother and my sister, spoke truth. And we will be exonerated at the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Father, which art in heaven, work in us such a regard for thy law, thy revelation, and the saving work thou hast done in Jesus Christ, that we love truth. Speak it and say it. May our yes be yes and our no be no as we live one with another. Then we can take an oath when the right circumstance arises. We can do it knowing that what we said already was true, and that in taking an oath thou wilt bear witness that what we said was true, and our conscience can be clean. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.